0: and Amanda and Barb as always. Go ahead and take your Bibles with me this morning if you would and turn over to Titus chapter 2 as we go ahead and get started this morning. I will ask your indulgence this morning. I'm working on a tiny bit of a summer cold and so I'm a little more dependent on my cough drops and my water bottle than I like to be on a Sunday morning per se. But uh, I'll try and be as not distracting as possible as we spend time in the Word together. Let's go ahead and stand as we get started for a moment. I know Mark just let you sit down, but I want to read through our text together. And I think it's a good habit to be in that we stand in honor of God's Word when we read it together as a congregation. So, Timothy, I think I have that in there, don't I? All right, Titus 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and read together. It's up on the screen if you want to look there or if you have... Uh, The New King James Version is what's up on the screen if you want to read out of your own Bible and stick with us. And Paul writes and he says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, Not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Thank you. And you may be seated. Paul writes a, a massive piece of our New Testament as we look through it by, by number of books that he wrote, number of books that appear in our New Testament, Paul is easily our largest single author, and he's probably by uh, volume of words written also the largest single author in the New Testament. As far as being one of the great minds of the New Testament Uh, Paul, it's interesting that Paul is the apostle who in 1 Corinthians wrote and said, you know, that God does not call many wise, not many scholars, not many rich, not many famous of the world. And yet, very arguably, Paul was one of the uniquely great theological minds of his time. He was the student of Gamaliel. He was uh, the one who would have sat at his feet, was next in line. You know, there's this progression as you read through the Gospels. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he is the teacher in Israel. There's a definite article there. He is the guy. If you want to know what the Old Testament says, what, what some particular area of theology meant, you went to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus eventually, through the book of Acts, becomes a believer and loses his place on the Sanhedrin, loses that prestigious place in Jewish life as the teacher in Israel, and Gamaliel is the teacher in Israel who follows after him. He is the the successor to that mantle as the great theological mind of Israel, and Paul is his student and in line to someday inherit that title. You can only imagine the frustration of the Jewish leadership at this period. You know, here's Nicodemus, and he goes the way of this uh, side sect, the, this weird branch of Judaism that they, they hated and despised so much. And then Gamaliel's student follows after the same path, and it, like, it must have felt like they were just losing theological minds right and left to the church at that time. And so Paul writes and has this massive influence as the great theological mind of the church upon our thinking and upon our behavior. When Paul writes, he writes broadly in three categories. You look at all of the books that he contributes to the New Testament, and you can break them down basically into three types of letters. Uh, The first and by far the most common are instructive epistles to the churches. Paul writes to the church in Rome. He writes to the church in Corinth. He writes to the church in Ephesus and Philippi and all over the place. And he writes because there is some issue going on in the church. There's some defect in their doctrine, in their practice. And Paul feels it needful to correct them, to remind them, to encourage them, to draw them back to sound doctrine. And it's interesting, Paul writes uniquely ...to churches that he either founded himself or that were founded out of those who were saved in his ministry. And so the vast majority of his letters are letters that he writes back to churches that he planted... ...or as in the case of the Roman church, a church that was planted from those who were saved under Paul's ministry... ...and then they traveled to Rome and plant the church. And so Paul feels a very close and almost fatherly relationship with these churches... He writes to them with this tender heart of a pastor, says, Look, I, I was there. I led most of you to the Lord. I, I'm the one who, who taught you what the scriptures say in a lot of cases. And so he comes along not harshly, but seeking to encourage, to build up, to strengthen the church. And so the, those are by far the most common. Secondly, and much less common, in fact, there's just three of them, we have the so called pastoral epistles where Paul writes to uh, Timothy and Titus, his sons in the faith, as he calls them. These are young men who were saved early on in Paul's ministry. They traveled with him. They helped plant many of the churches. And later on in Paul's ministry, as the breadth of it grew, and frankly, as he started spending more and more time in prison, Paul would send Timothy and Titus out, along with some of the other young men who would trained with him, to be his troubleshooters, to be his personal emissaries in churches that needed some strengthening, that needed help. And they would be able to be there and be on site where Paul couldn't personally be at that time. And so, first and second Timothy are written to Timothy while he's ministering in Ephesus and needs encouragement. Titus is written to Titus while he's uh, ministering in the church in Crete. Again, needing encouragement, needing instruction, needing support during the midst of that time. And so Paul writes to them in that manner, and he encourages them that they might uh, build up the church. But he writes to them in a way that isn't uniquely, necessarily, for just pastors. Sometimes we hear that title, Pastoral Epistles. And we have the temptation to think, well, these are letters that are written by Paul to pastors. And the rest of the church can kind of just, you know, well, hey, I'm not a pastor. Those are for Pastor Tim. Those aren't for the rest of us. And in fact, Paul, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, that Timothy, I'm writing unto you that you might know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the church of God. Paul is writing to encourage Timothy how to be a good leader in the church. But more than that, beyond that, he's writing to Timothy to encourage and to build up the church so that the entire church might know how they ought to live out the truths of the gospel that they had accepted and honor and serve their Lord more faithfully. And so he writes to the entire body of the church And then third and finally, Paul has just one of this last type of epistle. This is a a personal plea from Paul, and it's, of course, the letter to Philemon. And so you have there the case of Onesimus, this runaway slave who flees from his saved master Philemon at the time. Onesimus is not saved. He flees to Rome, and he falls into the influence of Paul and eventually becomes a believer And after he's saved, all of a sudden it dawns on him how wicked his actions had been leaving his master, fleeing from Philemon, effectively stealing from his master in so doing. And so part of his early salvation experience is coming to realize that he needs to make that right with Philemon. And so Paul, as Philemon, or as Onesimus is going back to Philemon to make that right and to restore that relationship, Paul writes the letter of Philemon, sends it in Onesimus' hands back to Philemon, and pleads that Philemon would receive Onesimus not as an unruly slave, not as a lawbreaker, but as a beloved brother in Christ, as he now was. And so we have that final, unique letter but it's that middle type, the pastoral epistles that we're going to look at this morning, and particularly this second chapter of Titus. You see, Paul wrote here to encourage these young men in ministry. Timothy and Titus, he he wants to support them. He wants to encourage them. Paul was a firm believer in the reality that what you believe will impact how you behave. We see this all over as you read through Paul's epistles to every single one of the churches he writes to. Paul writes to churches that have problems, which is every church, right? There, there are no perfect churches. All churches have struggles. We all have problems. We all have areas where we're still growing, where we're still maturing, where we still need to learn better how to walk in the truths of Scripture. And so Paul writes to these churches, and from our human perspective, there's a temptation to say, Paul, you know, why, why don't you just open up and cut right to the heart of the matter? And yet, in every single one of those epistles, Paul starts and has a lengthy doctrinal thesis at the beginning. He writes chapter after chapter explaining sound doctrine and building up the church's understanding of how the gospel impacts whatever issue they're going through. And only after he builds that foundation of theology does Paul turn and say, therefore, because that doctrine is true, it should have these impacts on our lives. It should have this impact on the way the church interacts with each other. It should have this impact on the way we treat the world around us. Because if we don't line our thinking up with Scripture first, our actions invariably stray from the right path. Our lifestyle invariably falters and stumbles. It's only by drawing our thinking back and anchoring it in the truths of Scripture, anchoring it in sound doctrine, A, that we get unified as a body of Christ. You know, we, there, there's a lot of diversity. That's a word that's super popular in our world today. Our world today wants a very specific kind of diversity. They're looking for a very surface level, outward diversity that checks some quota boxes. But boy, don't have an idea that differs from what they think is true. Don't want to do something that varies from their plan in any way. Because that kind of diversity is not welcome. But in the Church of Christ, we have a, this massive diversity. We, we come from different ac- economic backgrounds, we come from different lifestyles, we come from different family backgrounds, we, not so much in rural upstate New York, but we come from different ethnic backgrounds, we come from different uh, family structures, we, all of this diversity that's built in. And yet we are unified, not because we all live in the same geography per se, people come and go, But because we all cling steadfastly to the truth of Scripture, and it is around sound doctrine, Paul says, that the church is truly united and truly has fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. Every time Paul talks about unity in his epistles, he draws that idea of unity back to it's grounded in Scripture. That is the foundation. That's the place that binds us and knits us together. And so he writes to Timothy to build up, and to Titus here, to build up that doctrinal foundation, to establish in us right thinking so that we can then have lives that reflect the gospel as they ought to. And I love the the verbiage that he opens chapter 2 with. But as for you, speak the things, live the things, have a lifestyle that portrays the things that are proper for sound doctrine. Actually, this is one of the cases where I really love the Old King James Translation. Does anybody remember what the Old King James Translation says here? It says the things that are becoming of sound doctrine. You know what that means? Things that are appropriate for Things that enhance. Things that make it it Attractive. He says, you, you ought to have a lifestyle that puts sound doctrine on display and shows it for how good and profitable and delightful it is in your life. It, it ought to be a lifestyle that reflects well on the doctrine that you claim to believe. You know, we, we live in upstate New York, and cultural Christianity is not really a thing in upstate New York. But when I lived in the South for a few years during college, down there, cultural Christianity is a massive thing. Almost everybody has a little Jesus symbol, a fish, on their business card. It doesn't matter if they actually go to church or not. It's there because it's culturally acceptable And it's the thing that everybody's encouraged to do, whether they actually have a relationship with Christ or not. And so you run into lots of people who have a claim to the truths of Scripture, who make an affirmation that they believe these things, and yet whose business practices and lifestyle don't do anything to enhance the appearance of sound doctrine. Paul says that ought not be the case. We ought to have a conversation, we ought to have a lifestyle that is proper, that is becoming, that is attractive of the doctrine that we speak and proclaim and claim. Note, as we dive into this text, even though Paul here is authorized, he's even commanded to speak with apostolic authority. Paul says many times that he is the the last of, and he even says the least of the apostles, and yet he speaks with that apostolic authority, that that ability to speak on Christ's behalf. And yet everywhere throughout his ministry, wherever we find him in the book of Acts or in his epistles, he's primarily teaching from Scripture, And he has this attitude, he's teaching from the Old Testament, he has this attitude whereby he encourages the behavior of the Bereans and those like them, who whenever Paul teaches, what did they do? They went back and searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And so Paul, who has every right to to speak as Christ's personal emissary, yet he grounds himself steadfastly. And the truths of Scripture. And so, writing to the churches of, in Crete, to Titus here, Paul feels it needful to encourage Titus first to, to finish training and establishing godly and sound leadership. He does that in chapter one. But secondly, and no less importantly, Paul here t- teaches us the appropriate, the, the fitting roles of every member of the body of the church so that we might live a life, so that we might have a testimony in the world around us that is becoming of, that is proper for, that reflects well on the sound doctrine we claim to hold. Ministry was not something here that Paul saw as appropriate or as only taking place when the elders or the deacons of the church were involved. You know, every once in a while I I tend to Use that term a lot when I'm talking with people about their ministry in the church, their ministry in their workplace, and, and sometimes I say that to somebody, and you can kind of see the wheels start turning, and you get that look like, I wonder if he realizes that I'm not in full-time vocational ministry. You know, like I say, you know what your ministry in this area or not, and somebody gives me the look that says, Yeah, I work a nine-to-five job down here, the, down the road a little ways. I, I don't have a ministry. That's not Paul's attitude at all. Paul's attitude as he speaks to the church here is that wherever God has placed you is your ministry. Whatever circumstances God has put you in, whether that's uh, uh, as a student, whether that's as a teacher, whether that's as a parent, whether that's as an employee, whether that's as a retiree, that is your place of ministry that God has put you in. I, I love how Paul says that when he writes in the letter to the Ephesians. He says that I call you to be faithful to the vocation that God has called you to for ministry. Remember, Paul's in prison at the time when he writes that. I, Paul, the, the, the slave, the servant, the prisoner of Christ, call you to be faithful wherever God has called you to. It doesn't matter where it is. It's the ministry God's placed you in. It's whatever circumstances you're in. And so he encourages us here that in whatever that ministry is, our life ought to reflect the sound doctrine. He opens up with this admonition in verse 1, to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That which adorns, which makes attractive, which makes desirable the sound doctrine. Paul's longing in the church, first and foremost was that a right understanding of who God is and who we are might pervade the thinking and the teaching of the church. And note here that it's not just Paul's intent that the the preaching from behind the pulpit be what is proper for sound doctrine. That, That absolutely ought to be true. I know... Tim has said this before, and, I, and I've gladly and wholeheartedly reiterated. If we ever say, if anyone who's ever standing up here says something that doesn't line up with Scripture, we, we want to hear about it. We want to be challenged and encouraged in that. We, we want that. It doesn't mean it's always pleasant and we're always going to love that process. But that's needful for us. And that, that's a relationship that grows in the body of Christ. But it's more than just that. That's, it's not something that only takes place here. That's something that takes place day to day in every conversation that you have. Is it a conversation that adorns sound doctrine? Do we live a lifestyle in our workplace, in our school, in our personal lives, in our, our family lives that reflects the truths of Scripture that we claim to hold? That's a terrifyingly high bar. That, that is a constant and an ongoing struggle for us. Uh, you know, I've said before on this vein that each and every person who has ever lived is a theologian. We, we don't tend to think of ourselves that way. I'm, I'm a theology nerd. I think about myself that way a lot. Because that's, that's, kind of, that's one of my things. You know, I, We all have our things that we're interested in more than anybody else is interested in whatever that topic is you know how you know what your thing is if it's something that you can talk about so long that everybody else gets bored and walks away that's one of your things okay so I, I know what some of my things are my kids will tell me what some of my other things are sometimes but whether you think of yourself that way or not Everyone who has ever lived is a theologian. The, the most hardened atheist in all of history is a theologian. They're just really bad at it. OK? But we have an opinion. We have a view. Everyone who's ever lived has a view of who God is. The question is not, are you a theologian? The question is, how good is your theology? Does it line up with what scripture teaches or is it something that you've imagined for yourself or you followed after what somebody else claims? Let me let you in on a little secret here. If your view of God is informed by what you think or how you feel or your own reason or what this philosopher or that philosopher has said, you're probably not a very good theologian. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings here. That's not my intent, although it happens. But the measure of how good our theology is is how closely does it line up with what God teaches in his word. He has revealed himself to us. You know, I love that passage in the opening of the book of Romans where Paul says everyone who's ever lived can look at the creation around them and know that there is a God. You know what's missing from that? You can know that there is a God without knowing anything from the pages of Scripture. You cannot, under any circumstances, come to a saving knowledge of that God without first coming to the pages of Scripture. God revealed himself he pours out his expression of who he is, ultimately sending his son to live a life that expressed himself in the most perfect way imaginable that mere humans could possibly understand so that we could know him. And if we reject that and follow after our own thinking, then our theology is bad. There's nothing else to say about it. And so as we come to sound doctrine here, we need to understand what Paul means by sound, healthy, well-formed doctrine. He's saying not only do you need to live a lifestyle that reflects your doctrine, but it's only worth bothering to do if your doctrine is the doctrine that lines up with Scripture. Otherwise, we might as well not bother. If we overthrow God's teachings about himself in order to follow our own ideas, our own feelings, or the thoughts of any other man, then we fail to understand him rightly because the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Scripture and scripture alone is sufficient to give us a foundation for truth. Paul speaks at great length in the book of Romans, assuring us that it is through Scripture that God works by his Spirit to move in the hearts of those who believe and bring them to salvation. Notice that there's two things going on there. The Spirit of God does the work in the heart of man, but God says the Spirit of God always does that through the work of Scripture in the heart. He never separates the two of those things. They're uniquely bound together. And so we need to base our thinking and our mindset in that reality. All right, I've introduced long enough. Let's dig in then and see what that practically looks like. Paul is trying to be intensely practical here. He wants Titus and the church in Crete to have a solid idea of what it means to live a life that adorns the gospel well. And so he break, to do that, he breaks the church body up into four general categories. These are not my categories. These are Paul's categories. So if you find one of these categories offensive, uh, I'll just put two disclaimers on that. First, they're Paul's categories and not mine. And second, I'm not going to tell anybody which category you belong in. You can self-select the category you think is appropriate. No questions here. So he starts off with the older men. And we'll just say you know who you are, who we are. I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to self-identify more in that category than in the other category, but we'll move on. So he says, he writes here, Titus two, 2 and he says to, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patient. He breaks his instructions down here and and really just tries to give us some general categories so we can understand what our role in the body of Christ might look like at a particular season of life and how our day-to-day living of the gospel should influence how we integrate into and impact the rest of the church around us. And so firstly, to older men, that they be sober, that is grave, serious, Not frivolous and carried away with every passion and momentary interest of the day. Uh, This is not a statement that we should never be excited about anything. Anybody who's ever watched Pastor Tim knows that he's passionate about things. Amen. Right? Uh, Being sober does not mean we never get excited, but it means we have that under control. That we're not just born along by those passions. You know, one of the hallmarks of the young is that whatever thing they're interested in, they're almost myopically interested in for a season. And it lasts for a little while, and then it's over. And something else is the thing they're interested in for the season, and, and almost frantically so for a season. And it lasts for a little while, and then it's over. Paul says as the mature, as the older men of the church, we need to have outgrown that getting carried away with our excitement and be able to think seriously about the matters of the church, seriously about the doctrine that we claim to hold to. Soberness in Scripture either speaks of literal abstinence from alcohol, which isn't likely in the context here based on what else is around it, Or more generally, it speaks of uh, that general unwillingness to let anything, not just alcohol, but anything, have control of our thinking and of our lives and our attitude and behavior except the work of the Holy Spirit. So are are we willing to submit ourselves to and follow the teachings of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts, or are we carried about by this trend and that trend and this excitement and all, you know, the... Some of us have ADD and have what my mother called squirrel syndrome. Does anybody know what squirrel syndrome is? It's, you know, you're, you're doing something at squirrel. You know, you learn to live with that, but but at some point maturity needs to set in, and we grow out of the ability for that to just constantly veer us off track and mature into an ability to maintain a focus on the things that are truly important to us, on the things of sound doctrine. And so Paul says, first and foremost, the older men are to be the sober ones, the, the ones who are thinking carefully about things, the thing, ones who are, aren't just carried away by everything that happens around them, so that the church can have a steadiness to it. They're the stabilizing influence on the church, not, not to draw it into a stupor of inactivity, but to keep it from being swept away in false doctrine or unbecoming actions through passion and hasty excitement. The passion of the young is useful and powerful, but there is a reason that most world-class athletes are, are the young, why most savant-level intellects peak before their 30s, but because it's something that can't be maintained forever, and it tends to be so red-hot passionate about something that it just burns itself out in due time. And so Paul is looking for the, the older men of the church to be that stabilizing, stabilizing, steadying influence. Not to stifle the church, but to protect it and to guard it. For, and particularly that thing in it which Paul considers vital, the sound doctrine of the church. Additionally, he says that the older men, we are to be sober, we are to be reverent. That is to have a high regard for spiritual things. The church of God is not some mere social society, not designed just to do good works in the community. If all the church is is some other organization that meets once or twice a month or a couple times a week or whatever it might be and and does some nice things for the community, and that's it, then it's a waste of our time. The, The key mission of the church of God is not... hand out boxes of food or to meet people's physical needs there are times when that is the right thing to do and we certainly want to emulate our Savior who himself was gracious and met the physical and the temporal needs of the crowds that followed after him but if we stop there and don't meet the most pressing need that each and every soul in all of history has then we have failed in our core mission Our key responsibility is to proclaim the word. To the lost, it's a call of the gospel. And to the redeemed, it's a call to maturity and to exhortation to grow up and grow stronger in the truth. But either way, it's the proclamation of the word. That is the key, undeniable ministry of the church. You go back, I always think it's fascinating, you go back to Acts chapter 6. And you have there the, the first proto-deacons. And so the church is being established and, and it's growing and there's all kinds of new impacts and responsibilities coming and, and a little bit of a, a tension springs up in the church where uh, some of the, uh, the widows don't think they're being treated as fairly as some of the other widows and so there's some tension going on. And what's the response of the apostles and the leaders in the church? It's not good That we should leave the ministry of studying the word and teaching the word in prayer in order to wait on tables. Not that those physical ministries were bad things. In fact, they create the first proto-deacons specifically to meet that need. But that there is a greater, there's a higher, there's a more important need in the life of the church that we focus on the word of God. And so the, the apostle here says that the elder men ought to be reverent. They ought to have a firm fixation, not on the passing trends of the world, but on the truth of Scripture. They ought to be the ones who have a spiritual-mindedness and have a, a clear thinking about those things. Further, the older men were to be temperate, that is, well-balanced, not improperly dominated or tilted by anything in their lives that made them unstable or reckless. As the leaders in their homes, their families, and in the church, these men were to be thoughtful and well-considered followers of Christ, men who would serve as the repository of wisdom and Christ-likeness in the church rather than being blown about with every wind of interest or doctrine. Paul is looking here for, for the steadfast men who had grown up in the truth of Scripture and were willing to be that stabilizing influence as they pass it along to the next generation. And finally, Paul says they are to be sound. And he gives us three areas where they're to be sound. The word sound" here means literally healthy. Think of it this like uh, you would talk about wood in a house. You open up the wall and you look at the studs, they're either sound, they're still strong, they're still whole, they're still doing their job, or there's something there that shouldn't be, right, Tim? Sometimes you open up the wall and you go, hmm. There's some things there that ought not be there. There, There's mold, there's decay, there's termite and insect damage. There's something there that should not be there and now that wall is unsound. And so Paul says these are men who ought to be sound, stable, healthy, strong in their lives. And particularly sound in faith. Not faulty in their faith. Faith here in context, I think, is more likely the body of faith. Those doctrines that they hold to, as Jude speaks of, the faith once delivered for the saints rather than their lifestyle of faith. But really, either sense would serve well here and is a desirable trait in the mature believer. But in Paul's context here, being focused on sound doctrine that becomes, that adorns a believer's life, the church here needs the older men to stand firm, have a complete, a whole, a strong, a mature view of Scripture. You know, it is a relatively recent that we had, we have this phenomena of universities and this idea that you send men off to university and men and women off to university in order to learn the truths of Scripture. Historically, that is something that happens in the church. And it is our, our passionate desire that we are preaching and teaching the Word of God faithfully so that someone who sat for a decade in the preaching of the church has an education has an understanding of has a, a strength and a growth in the in the Word of Christ as though they had received a bible education at some four year university that that is our heart 's desire that that 's our goal sometimes sometimes you might find that exhausting you know I, I always joke i 'm always in joy when somebody else says that they were they enjoyed or they found profitable some study that I've been, had the opportunity to teach. I say, great, because I was loving it. That's why we were teaching it. So I'm glad everybody else who was stuck along the way enjoyed it as well. Hopefully, I'm not just preaching and teaching because it serves me. That's not the goal here. The goal is that it might be edifying, that it might be profitable for the body of Christ. And so we are to be sound in faith. Not only that, but he says, sound in love. Love here, the love of Christ, is what defines the body of believers. When Christ is speaking to the apostles at the end of John's gospel, he says, they shall know you by your love. The love of the body of Christ, one for another, is something that is supposed to stand out, it's supposed to be unique. It's not the way the world behaves. Remember Christ's response, you know, should I? do I love my, and I hate my enemy, do I love my neighbor, Who, who's my neighbor? And Christ says, well, what is it if you love your friends and hate your enemies? The world does that. That's not unique. What's unique in the body of Christ is that we self-sacrificingly love. We're willing to place the, the good of the body of Christ, the good of the other members of the body of Christ, above our own good above our own preferences. You know, we, we have this conversation, we have, it's been a little while since we've had it, but we have it fairly often in leadership meetings when we're talking through an issue. At some point, somebody will say, all right, is this a theology issue? Is this a, a principle issue? Or is this a preference issue? Because if it's a a principle issue, then we need to work together and study it out from Scripture and we need to come to the place where we all agree what Scripture teaches so we can go where God wants us to go. If it's a preference issue, somebody pick something and let's move on. Because our responsibility in the body of Christ is to prefer my brother above myself. So so if this is just preferences we're arguing about, then why are we arguing? Let's move on. And that is an attitude that we very intentionally tried to cultivate. It's a growing process. But we try to cultivate because we see that as part of living out the love of Christ in the body of Christ. It doesn't need to be my preference. It needs to be what's good for the body of Christ. And very often, that means setting our own preferences, our own desires, our own uh, likes and dislikes aside. And so Paul here sets the bar high for the the character of these older men. They're to be mature men of the church, not because he's desiring to shame us for our struggles and failings, but because he wants us to understand what the bar is of living up to Christ-likeness in our day-to-day lives. It's something that Paul says we strive for day by day, always seeking and never attaining in this life. Finally, he says the older men are to be sound in patience. That is, forbearance for the faults, the failings, and the quirks of others. But the mature believer is not to be quick to anger, not to be biting or harsh in their responses. It doesn't mean that they can never be firm, but that a grace should be manifest in our dealing with others that reflects the grace of Christ in dealing with us. You know, I... I knew a guy in college at one point, one of the professors, and he always said, you know, that I, I would try to always remind myself when I'm getting frustrated with somebody else, their quirkiness, their whatever. I says, I try and remember that I'm a pretty quirky guy, too, and I must frustrate a lot of people in my day-to-day life. You know, that, that's one of those realities that it, we, we don't see that about ourselves, but we're always quick to spot everyone else's quirks everyone else's foibles and faults and failings. And the patience in the body of Christ grows out of that love, that willingness to put others before ourselves and to say, you know what, Brother Ben, he's kind of weird sometimes. But I'm going to be gracious about that because I want him to be gracious in return because Christ was gracious towards me. I'll ignore the snickering and we'll move on. Not only does he speak to the older men, he speaks to the older women here. Paul Paul looks across the aisle, as it were, and says to the older women, likewise, after the same manner, the the same attitudes that should dominate the thinking of the men should also be in the thinking of the women. He says, the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. We'll stop there. So to the older women likewise, for the same reasons, after the same manner, for the the same desire of adorning sound doctrine in their lives. None of these lists are exclusive to one group either. I want to just kind of throw that out there. The character traits that are good in the older men are good in everyone in the body of Christ. Paul is here highlighting the things that he thinks are most needful. He's giving you the top couple of reasons, top couple of attitudes, top couple of behaviors in each category that he wants to emphasize. But he should not be taken here to imply that none of these matter to any of the other categories. That's absolutely not the case. And so he starts out speaking to the older women. He says, likewise, just like the men, they, they have some traits that should adorn sound doctrine that are becoming of the truth of the gospel in your lives. And the first and foremost is that they be reverent, focused on spiritual life of the church more than the social life of it. You know, it's a sad commentary when the life of the church groups and meetings takes on the same character and attention to trivial details and and social things and the passing things of of the, the world as the social clubs and public service groups of the world do. Our passion, our desire, our our focus should not be on the same kinds of passing things, the trivialities of the world, that draw in secular societies. All of those things are good things and can serve their purpose, but they are not the purpose of the church. Uh, The the experience and the maturity of the older women is supposed to set a precedent for leadership and an increased focus on spiritual matters. That's partly just a matter of practice in their own lives. It's partly the reality of transitioning to a phase of life that is less focused on the intensive aspects of raising a young family and now allows for more time and attention to the spiritual life of the church. But Paul is desirous that that attitude of reverence, that, that passion for spiritual things be present both in the older men and the older women in the church. That ought to be the hallmark of the gray hairs, as they would have put it in scriptural times. The, that, that glory of gray hair. That, you know, we look at that today and everybody wants to dye that out. In scriptural days, that was looked at as a mark that you had lived enough life to have acquired experience, to have accrued wisdom, to have, in a very real sense, to have survived long enough to have learned from your lessons and mistakes. And so that was seen as a glorious thing, and it was seen as a a hallmark of those whose advice was worth listening to. And so Paul looks for that and desires that that Glory that honor of the elder men and women be steeped in a reverence for spiritual things. Secondly, he says, not slanderers. All right, ladies, I'm going to get myself in a little trouble here. This stands in a sharp contrast to most of the women's groups in secular life. I'm not saying that men don't do it, but there is something about a women's group that tends to have a, a... A bent towards gossip. And Paul says that ought not be the case in the life of the church. That ought not be, and particularly slander here. Slander is actually the same word that Paul uses when he speaks about Satan accusing the believer he says, so we're not just talking about, you know, visiting and sharing what's going on in, in family life and updating each other. He's saying, look, that it ought not be that kind of gossip that veers off into backbiting and bitterness and stirring up trouble among the body of Christ. That has no place in the body of Christ. That, that, that's, you know, old tropes, but there is a reason sometimes why they exist. And so there, there's the old, you know, a bunch of old washerwomen. Well, that's an old euphemism that stood from the times when all the women of the city would go out and they'd be knee-deep out in the creek or the river washing all the clothes together. And that was the time where you're all standing out there together and you'd get into conversation and start sharing whatever news and gossip of the day. And and Paul says, look, that, that conversation among the body of Christ ought not veer into that lane of slander and backbiting and stirring up trouble. It ought be that which is wholesome. Go back to the reverent conversation that he's trying to encourage. It ought to be that which is edifying and building up, not that which is tearing down. And so he gives caution there. Not only that, he says, not given to much wine. Not given to much wine. I want to, you know, we, we live in a wildly different time than Paul is writing in. Remember as he says this, that there's at least three legitimate uses for wine in day-to-day life in Paul's time. First and foremost, the most common was that they would use it, almost everyone used it in Paul's time in order to make water potable. You know, our ideas of clean, safe drinking water and of good sanitation almost wholly unknown. Everybody talks about the Romans inventing sanitation and sewage that is true, they weren't so great about necessarily not digging the well 10 feet from where the sanitation channel went with predictable consequences for the quality of the water. And so they didn't necessarily understand why they had a problem, but everyone knew that if you had the, pot, the jar of water on the table for dinner and you mixed a little bit of wine in with it, nobody got sick the next day. And so it was common practice. And so that's the first, the primary use. Not only that, it was the pain reliever of the day. Scripture speaks on a number of occasions about those who are gravely wounded or those who are dying, giving them a little bit of wine to cut the pain. They didn't have Tylenol and Ibuprofen or any of the medications we rely on today. And so alcohol was the pain reliever for someone who is in extreme pain. There wasn't an alternative. And thirdly, it was the antiseptic of the day. You can understand why not everybody took their wounds to the local doctor. I mean, on the one hand, he was as likely to put a leech on you as anything else. And on the other hand, when he did decide he needed to clean some wound out, he'd do it with strong alcohol. There's a pleasant experience. Every guy knows, you know, I despised the arrow when we were supposed to be using the stupid hand sanitizer 1,800 times a day. Because you get the tiniest little cut that you didn't even know you had, and you grab some of that 90-some-odd percent hand sanitizer we were using for a little while there all the time. Whew. You find those cuts, every single one. You can't even see some of them, but you know they're there. And so this has common uses. Every household had wine in it for these common practical uses. And so Paul's admonition here is isn't that, look, everybody should be a dry household. He says, not given to much wine, not given to the abuse of it, not given to taking it and using outside of its good and appropriate purposes and making it something that overtakes your life. You know, that's true of so many things in our lives, not just alcohol. There's a lot of things in our lives that have good and profitable uses, I mean, hey, I may not like the guy who owns the company, but praise the Lord for Facebook, praise the Lord for YouTube. We get to broadcast the preaching of God's word all over the world as a result of those two companies. That was something that was impossible 10 years ago. The kind of money that it would have taken to do that 10 years ago isn't even worth talking about for a church our size. And now we do it easily. Praise the Lord for that. But by the same token, social media can be something that can destroy your life if you give it that power. If you you let yourself get caught up in it and dominated by it, it can wreck your life. It can dominate your thinking. It can overtake you. And so many other things. You could go on and on and on listing things that have good, practical, useful purposes. But when done to excess, are damaging to your life, are damaging to the testimony of Christ in your life. And so Paul here is writing, he's saying, look, don't let those things which are practical and useful in your lives be those things that overtake you and derail you from having a testimony in the community that honors Christ and that gives him the glory and shows forth his good pleasure and his sound doctrine. And so Paul's admonition here, not given to much wine, And finally, they were to be teachers of good things that they admonish the younger women. And I put those two things together. The verse break there is a little unfortunate, in my opinion, because I think those go together. Paul's desire here is that the older women be those who specifically build a practice of passing along the wisdom and the good habits and the reverence and the clear thinking to the next generation. That's not to suggest that women, older women can only teach younger women. That's not my intent at all. That's certainly not true. But there is a role there. There's a lot of life lessons that can be passed on. There's a lot of uh, just general living out the walk of Christ lessons that can be passed along that are either most appropriate or are, are best received from somebody who's already done it. You know, that... that a lot of times, whether it's fair or not, we struggle to receive advice from someone on a topic that they haven't lived through that. It's human nature. We, we want to see that somebody has actually been there and done that. That doesn't necessarily mean the advice is bad from somebody who hasn't been there and done that. But we have a tendency to only take that advice well from people who've lived through the experience. And so a lot of times, Paul here has a view (coughs) that the older women have a unique opportunity to minister to, to encourage the younger women as they're raising their families. And so he wants one of the intentional, one of the purposeful attitudes of the older women to be that part of their ministry is passing along that wisdom, is encouraging, is helping the next generation grow up in a way that honors and grows them in their walk with the Lord. He then moves to the younger women. Verse 4, that they admonish the young women. What specifically are they to admonish them of? What are the younger women to be taught? That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Paul's instructions to the younger younger women came in the form of what things the old women should be teaching them and passing them down. This handing down of the tribal wisdom, as it were, was much more common among the men of the day, very often uh, an apprenticeship. Or something akin to it was how a man would get a start in whatever trade, whatever industry he was working in. And so he would just naturally get passed on the wisdom of the generation before him as he learned his trade and worked side by side with them day to day. Whereas the family structures were very closely knit internally, but somewhat separated externally. And so it's required more intentionality, more effort for the older women to pass along the wisdom and the truths of Scripture to the next generation outside of their own family circle. And so he, he wants them to take a special effort for it. I want to make one note here as we get into the specifics of this. To the modern ear, there is a note almost of what we would call misogyny here in some of Paul's instructions. Unfortunately, we live in a time and an age where we've been so hammered with the world's thinking on men's and women's roles that it's almost impossible to escape that. That is not a defect in Paul's instructions, and it certainly is not a defect in the words that the Holy Spirit worked through Paul to write by inspiration for us in the Word of Scripture. These are not bad, misogynistic, or unhelpful instructions. These are not in any way demeaning to women. That is not what Scripture is claiming here. But the defect is in our understanding of the context and our understanding of the instructions themselves and perhaps most of all, our understanding of God's plan for the roles of men and women in the life of the family. When we line our thinking back up with Scripture... We recognize that these are very helpful, very profitable things that Paul is saying. But sometimes they tend to get our back up when we first hear them. So we just need to go into it with that mindset that this is the very word of God. And so when God is speaking here, this isn't something that we get an opportunity to judge or criticize or say, well, we know better than what scripture is saying. We need to come at it understanding that any defect is in our thinking and go from there. And so in our modern culture, any, any hint of distinction between the roles of men and women and what they're best fitted for and intended for by God is read as misogynistic. But that is not only wrong, but frankly it's a great disservice to women. And there, there is a sense in which the modern feminist movement, and particularly the modern gender fluidity movement that we're living through right at the moment, is seeking to erase womanhood, is seeking to make women nothing more than men who, frankly, if you follow their logic to its conclusion, women who are less good women. I I saw a guy, it was tongue-in-cheek, but I saw a guy a while back post uh, during one of these various sports fiascos where some guy who wasn't doing very good in the men's sports, decided he was going to pretend to be a woman for a little while so he could win some trophies. And, and the comment was made, look, all the best women are men now. Like, that's where this logic leads. We are following down a path where everything that is unique, everything that is special, everything that is divinely ordained as particular to the role of women and brings glory to the role of women that God has given them, is being wiped away and erased. You know, that, that's a, a sad and terrifying reality. That is not what God's intent was. God intended two different but complementary roles, both of which honor him, neither of which is lesser than the other, but which are unique. I, let, let's be blunt and honest for a moment. Women have superpowers. Like, you make people. Men don't do that. Despite what stupid posts on the internet think today, men don't do that. That is a gift that God uniquely gave to moms, to women. Along with a host of other things, but that is probably the most glaring example that is currently trying to be erased out of our culture. And we need to understand that God's thinking, God's plans for men and women to live complementary to each other, are not only His plans and therefore what's right, but are ultimately what is most satisfying, what brings the most joy, and what is best in the life of men and women there is no great joy to be found in objecting to and struggling against god's plans for the life of the family that only brings heartache that only brings sorrow that only brings uh, devastation and so we need to have that attitude as we go into it so so what are these instructions He says, first and foremost, to love their husbands. Let's be real, guys. We're not always easy to love. That takes an effort. The 800th time she's picking up the the socks off the floor or whatever it is, we're not always easy to love. All the wives know what the thing is. It's it's probably not the socks for every. Honestly, it's... I don't think it's always the socks. But anyway, don't don't ask. Um, (laughs) Right, yeah. Whatever it is, it's the something. And you've had the discussion however many times. Whatever that something is, Paul's advice, first and foremost, to the older women to teach the younger women is, love your husbands. Not because they deserve it, not because they're good men, not even necessarily because they're saved and godly men, but because you love Christ and He has called you to love your own husbands as He has loved His church. We often quote that verse and we look where Paul calls on husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Paul also calls on wives to love their husbands for the same reason. Because Christ loved us. He was willing to pour out unconditional love when we were his enemies. When when we were those who were his adversaries, he poured out love. And so he calls on wives to love their husbands the same way. That is not... Very often that love is carried out, it is emphasized, it is displayed through work in the home and through what we sometimes identify as traditional women's roles. But that is not to suggest that household chores are inherently women's work, but rather to make the point that the call to love is a call not to count offenses. It's a call not to seek to split things 50/50. Let me tell you, if you're trying to seek to split everything in your marriage 50-50, that is a heartbreaking endeavor. That will destroy your marriage. The call is to love your spouse and want to do everything you possibly can for them. Husbands towards your wives and wives towards your husbands. Because if you're trying to split it 50-50, you're going to spend all of your time, whether you mean to or not, keeping track all right, well, I washed three more dishes than he did last night, so tomorrow, if he doesn't wash three more dishes, there's going to be trouble. That is not a recipe for marital harmony. That brings heartache and devastation. And so Paul calls on them, first and foremost here, wives, love your husbands. Not only that, to love their children. This one is, if anything, even harder. Harder. On the one hand, God designed mothers with a supernatural ability to love their children that's almost terrifying in its power. Mothers have this instinctual drive to meet the needs of their children that will almost have no bounds upon it. And yet, moms see their kids day in and day out for their entire lives. Until sometime in their teenage years as a rule, no one knows your child as well as mom does. With inevitable consequences that mom knows every foible and every character flaw and every struggle and every stumble and every fault. That's hard sometimes. To love through that and not see the the faults and the defects and not be frustrated by them. And still day in and day out show the love of Christ in a way that honors the gospel and sets an example that you would want them to carry on in their own families someday. That's a struggle. The call, again, then, is not some kind of romanticized emotional response, but rather to show love, to model love, to live a life that puts actions and words and a constant example on love before your children. You know, God makes it clear that one of his chief purposes for the family is that each generation would raise the next generation to love and know and honor him. That, that's one of his goals, why family is organized the way it is, why society exists. The family is the first unit of society that God created. And it's quite a while before he creates the next one. And so he has this goal that each generation raised the next. And no one has a greater opportunity to train a child to know what the love of God is and what it looks like than a mother Charles Spurgeon put it eloquently, as was his wont to do, and I'm going to steal this from him. He says, those that think that a woman detained at home by her little family is doing nothing. The thing is the reverse of what is true. Scarcely sometimes can the godly mother quit her home in order to go to a place of worship, but dream not that she is lost to the work of the church. Far from it. She is doing the best possible service for her Lord. Mothers, the godly training of your offspring is your first and most pressing duty. Well said. No task can be more pressing. No task could have higher rewards. No task could have greater value in this life or the next than the godly rearing of your children. And only a mother who loves her children enough to place their needs, their good, their proper rearing ahead of her own comfort and peace and desires will be able to achieve that to the fullest extent possible. This is a calling of the highest order and worthy of being honored and revered and passed along from one generation to the next. And so if Paul calls on the younger women to learn to love their children. He also... i got to keep moving. He also calls on them to learn to be discreet. That is pure, appropriate, untainted by the excesses and follies of this world. This is not a statement on how a woman ought to rarely be seen outside of the home or should remain silent or some such hogwash. Rather, this is a statement that their character and conduct should be such as brings honor to Christ... And not an admonition against their lifestyles. Homemakers. This resonates with loving one's husband and children. It's a mistake to read the attitudes of a particular era or context here into what Paul is saying. Many women in Paul's day would have had at least some staff to help run the house. Very few were so poor to have had no assistant, no servant girl at all who would have been part of the day-to-day running of the house and and doing of the household chores. And so this is not a statement that, that mom needs to wash every dish in the house and scrub every piece of laundry, but rather it is a statement to make a mere dwelling place into a home, into a place where a family grows together and is able to live out their love one for another. This is not defined by a certain list of chores, but by a lifestyle, by an attitude, by a love for her family that draws her to build up that environment of Christ-likeness and love in the family that ought to be there. Good here. He says that they ought to be taught to be good is beneficial, right, appropriate, And it should, I believe, be read in the context of surrounding the lessons of the older women that were being passed along. This is not a call to some kind of perfectionism or some standard of having everything perfect and ready for that Facebook photo moment at all times. But rather a call that everything in life... Should be drawn towards this goal of seeking to honor Christ and be good and well adorning of sound doctrine in the home and the family. Shocking as it may seem to the modern mind, radical feminism is not new, is not novel, and is not progressive. It is, in fact, the same basic rebellion against God's ordained plan of complementarianism that has plagued families since the time of the fall. It was common in ancient Assyrian mythology, and it was common in Greek Gnosticism that were both well-known in Paul's day. And so Paul speaks, in some ways, into a context that's very similar to ours in our modern world today when he says next that the younger women were to learn to be obedient to their own husbands. Obedient here is not as a servant, but as Ephesians 5.22, as one who is willingly submissive. This is an act of willing obedience, first and foremost, to God and his command. And secondly, as an act of worship to God, to the husband who is the leader of the family. It's an act independent of the worthiness, the spirituality, the wisdom, the abilities of a woman's husband. And it is a compliment to the charge that men love their husbands, their own wives, as Christ loved their church, and be willing to give their lives for them. Fellas, that doesn't just mean willing to step in front of them when the car swerves out of the side of the road. That means day by day, every moment of life, lived in service for our wives. That, that is not a charge that is met in a moment, it is a lifestyle. Just as obedience is. And it is a charge that Paul lays here to submit our passions, our desires, and express our love one towards another in a way that honors the complementary nature of the roles that God has created us for. And notice importantly, one of the great fallacies about this. Notice importantly what he says. To be obedient to their own husbands. This is not a statement that women are somehow subject to all men. This is a reminder that in that bond of marriage, there is a unique relationship, husbands and wives together. This is an act of worship and love, worship towards Christ, love towards one another, inside the bounds of marriage. It is their wife and their husband that they love and submit to in this unique way. The one that is uniquely, intimately, and everlastingly theirs by covenant before God and man till death do them part. And any attempt to stretch this unique relationship outside the bounds of marriage is as much a perversion of what Paul is instructing as trying to seek to erase its existence in the first place. He's not looking here for some kind of relationship where the husband comes down and plops in the chair and gives the orders and the wife behaves as a servant. He's looking for a reciprocal relationship whereby the husband who's been charged with leadership of the family is lovingly supported and encouraged and worked together with by his wife as they strive to honor Christ in their own personal lives and in their families. And finally, he says, they do all of this, and again, this applies not just to the young women, but they do all of this, that the word of God be not blasphemed. This follows at the end of things that are instructed here for the older women to teach the younger women, but it parallels his reasoning at the close of the next session, section about what traits the young men are to exemplify and applies to every single one of us. There's been a trend in Christianity for decades now called lifestyle evangelism that suggests that if you live a life that honors God, that the world will just come looking for what you have and they'll come ask you about the gospel. I'm not suggesting that that will never happen because it does on rare occasions. What I would say, though, is that is not the model that Christ endorsed and commanded the church. The declaration is that we are to go and proclaim the truth. Now, if we're proclaiming the truth and we have a lifestyle that does not reflect the truth, that will destroy our testimony and greatly harm the cause of Christ. But we can't flip that on its head either and say, well, I don't have to go and tell anyone because if I just live my lifestyle here, then the world will come to me. Because that's not what we were commanded to do. That was the model that Israel operated under. They were supposed to be a nation that was so peculiar that the rest of the world would come and see. And part of the reason for that was as an example to show how the world wouldn't come and see and see and how faulty our testimony can be get great examples of that as tim is preaching through the book of judges in, in the evening services not tonight of course but over the summer and so the, the, these lives uh, these attitudes these character traits that paul is trying to build up on us he says that they exist so that the word of god so that the truth we're proclaiming be not blasphemed finally and lastly the young men Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. The young men here are to be sober-minded. That, that is not meant to be a dampening of the passion of youth, but it is to give sufficient carefulness to avoid the excesses that that passion can easily lead to. The young, in particular, tend to be caught up in whatever novelty has caught their attention in the moment, whatever fancy of the day is, and rather than considering carefully and wisely their actions and words and ideas, they get carried away with things. And so Paul says the the young men ought to be marked by their sober-mindedness, by their willingness to, to pause for a moment and think about things for a moment before they move on, to consider the the impact of what they're about to say or do on their testimony for the cause of Christ. In all things, he says, showing a pattern of good works, a pattern of good works. The, The overwhelming character of the young man was to be one of good works. The fruit of their sound doctrine was to be useful It wasn't simply to be words that they proclaimed, but it was to be a life that was lived out that showed that the gospel had an impact on how they treated others, that showed that they they had their beliefs changed how they behaved to the world around them. They're to be contributing members of society rather than scoundrels and hooligans, rather than the idle, indolent, and frivolous actions common to the young, they should be the marks of true faith and sound doctrine. In doctrine, he says, they were to show integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Notice Paul's return to doctrine here. Well, the young tend to be driven and passionate about their ideas, driven by whatever the idea of the week or the fad of the week is. The young men in particular here were to take great care that their doctrine that their understanding of the truths of Scripture was marked by integrity, by a firm commitment to the truth, not willing to bend or sway out of convenience for this fad or that fad. It was to be marked by reverence. Far from being frivolous and viewing sound doctrine as something trivial uh, trivial, the young men were to be encouraged to hold it in high esteem, to view it as a matter of great weight and importance in their lives an incorruptibility, an unshakable commitment to the teachings of scripture. You know, I, I praise God. I, I spent four years, four and a half years. I managed to cram a four-year degree into four and a half years. That's, that's a good trick. Um, but I managed to spend four and a half years at Pensacola Christian College, and I praised the Lord. I was there at a fairly unique window. Pensacola is not necessarily known as a college that that churns out great preachers of the word. It's a fairly sound school. I wouldn't have any problem telling somebody they should go there. But if somebody is passionate about being a preacher of the gospel, at most times in history, it would not be the first place I would send you. But I managed to be there in four years when there were four or five guys together on the Bible staff who had an absolutely uncompromising, incorruptible view of Scripture. Scripture was sufficient, Scripture was authoritative, and the question, I remember hearing this dozens of times, the question in any discussion about a text was, but what does the text say? I don't care what so-and-so says about it, and I don't care what the theories of this commentator or that commentator about it, I don't care what your favorite pastor on the radio said about it, what's the text say? And that question came back over and over and over. You knew if you didn't know you were foolishly mistaken you knew when you turned in a paper or when you preached and we're going to be critiqued on it for some class that was the lead question on these guys tongues so what you just said is what you just proclaimed is what you just wrote in that paper is it line up with what the text says that is the bedrock principle The incorruptibility of scripture. This is the foundation. We we know very few things for certain in our lives. But we know that the word of God is true and faithful and we can build a life on it. Do we stand there? Is that our foundation? Paul says for the young men of the church, this is crucial. You're passionate and you're getting pulled this way and that way and everything. But are you solid on the word of God? Is that the thing that anchors you and draws you back and fixes your mind? When when you're not sure about what's next, when when you're uncertain about some piece of doctrine, when some question comes up, is it, what does the text say that drags you back and draws you back? And I I praise God for that. They managed to rub that off, and I thank them for that. And it brings us back to our starting spot. You know, Paul says famously in, in his epistle to the Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. If some question arises, if if we're not sure what the next thing is, if you're trying to decide what, what the next step in life looks like, if you're trying to decide what the right answer to a question is, if you're trying to decide which way a doctrine goes, let God be true, and every man a liar. If all the rest of the world disagrees, but it's what the text says, God's right. And we need to line our lives and our thinking and our attitudes up with what he says. This is Paul's passionate desire for the church. That our lives should be so impacted by the gospel that when we go out and live them, when we speak to the world, when we live before the world, when we interact with our families and in our workplaces and in everything that he's touched on, every area of life here. And he says, what's the point? Look at the end of what he says to the young men. Sound speech, sound lifestyle, sound conversation in the world that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. A life that is lived such that the gospel is portrayed in it, and the world that hates and rejects the gospel and wants any excuse to turn away from the truth of God's word is forced to look at you and say, yeah, but he lives what he says. That's Paul's call to the body of Christ. That we be people who so reflect the gospel that the world can't do anything but recognize that we believe and we seek to live that which we proclaim is true. Let's close there with a word of prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you that we have the word of God to lean upon, that we can build our lives on the solid foundation of truth. We thank you that we have the the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us understanding so that we can look at your word and we can search it out and we can seek it and it's not shaded and hidden from us like it is from the world. We thank you that you instill in us through the work of the Holy Spirit a passion for the truth so that we have a hunger for it that the world simply does not have. Father, we just pray that you would keep that passion lit in our hearts and in our minds so that as we go about our day-to-day lives, it wouldn't be something that easily slips away, that, that gets lost somewhere between Sunday and Sunday, but that would define our every word our every action or every thought this week and in every week ahead of us. We pray that that would be a work you would do in our hearts. On our own, we are unfaithful and unwilling. We struggle and we flounder and we stumble. But it is a work that you have promised to continue doing in us from now until the day that we ultimately stand before you. We thank you and we praise you for that. Pray that you would give us hearts that long after that work. In Christ's name we come. Mark is going to come at this time and lead us in our closing song.